After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I had commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Okay. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me thus far? And as if this was, there were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard from our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. That's the word of the Lord. Amen. I want to say a couple quick things about this. Because this is a very important scripture. It's one of the core kind of scriptures of the, <clears throat> the whole Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is um, extremely important promise that God makes through the prophet Nathan to David, and then David's prayer in response. So just really quick. There's, 
in this word, there's a, there's a Hebrew word that's talking about house or home, and it kind of has two meanings and two and a half meanings, and David's using it one way, and then God's using it another way, and then they kind of bring them together. And what it is is David is looking around at his house, his temple, his place he stays in, like your house, and he's like, gosh, my house is all nice, and God's in like a tent. That's not cool with me. You know, God needs a house, like a house or a temple, you know, like a building, you know. And which I think is actually a really good attitude. And again, this is the whole thing about God saying David has a heart after him. You know, he's like, gosh, I don't feel right about this. I have this temple or I have this really nice house and God has not a really nice house. God needs a nice house. I should make him a nice house. Right. And the prophet's like, that sounds like a good idea to me. But then God speaks up and says, hold on a second. You need to tell him something else. Because you, you see sometimes like, I mean, this is a good idea. I'm not being down on anything. David has a good heart, the right heart. God doesn't even, like, rebuke him. But God says, I don't need a house from you. You know, a lot of times we have ideas about things we should do for God, okay? A lot of times we're like, you know, I feel like I should do this or I should do that. Sometimes those ideas are really good. And even the ones that are motivated good, um, sometimes they're just not necessary. Or they're to make us feel better about ourselves. You know what I mean? And you really got to think about some of these things because a lot of stuff we do to help other people sometimes might just be so we don't have to feel so bad about ourselves. You see what I'm saying? And you see a lot of stories like this where God, people do things or say things to God, or it's even sometimes like in Job kind of make accusations against God. Like, what have I done? You know, and God responds in this kind of way where he's like, I didn't ask you to make me a house. And also didn't, I don't need a house. Like I'm making your house. And that's where God starts to talk with the different meaning of the word house, where he's saying your family. He's like, who were you before I showed up? You know, I don't need you to make me a house. You need to see that I'm the one making houses here, you know. And when he's using the word house, he's more talking like your family line. Like we would say the house of Windsor or something. We don't say that because we're American. But if we were British, we would say, you see what I'm saying? That's the royal family in England. And so God's saying, so then God shifts it to, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do with your house. And he starts to reveal something he's been doing the whole time. And he does say, look, your son is going to build me a, a, a building house, you know, which, you know, Solomon does eventually do. But he's talking mostly about this dynasty, this family line that's going to live forever, that's going to remain forever. So there's two points that we should take away from this. One is never underestimate God. And then the other one is to trust him, especially when things get weird. Okay? What do I mean by that? Never underestimate God is David is looking at a situation where he's like, this is a house. I have a nice house. God does not have a nice house. Remember, they brought the ark of God's presence in and put it in a tent. That's what we talked about last week. That's what he's referring to. I'm inside in this awesome house. God has a tent. I don't feel right about that, you know. And so he's like, I'm going to build him a building so that's cool, so we're good. And he's kind of thinking, that's, a, again, a good heart and everything, but he's thinking small. Like, I'm going to do this thing so that we're all good, you know. And God starts to talk to him about, like, yeah, okay, I get it and all, but I'm talking about something way bigger than that. So when I say never underestimate God, the way we tend to think is so small, so small about our lives. And it's not that God doesn't care about our lives. Obviously, there's other scriptures about him knowing every hair we have on our head or caring about the flowers and the birds. And the, He cares more about the details of our lives than we do. But oftentimes, the things we spend our time worrying about or being concerned about, even in our relationship with God, tend to be so small. Meanwhile, God is like, I'm talking about something so much bigger than that. You just don't get it. So don't underestimate. Don't box God in. with our. And then the other thing is to trust him. Because when he starts to say back something to David, David's like, whoa, whoa. Like, I wasn't expecting that. 
And you see that in his response where he's like, wait, who am I? Like, why are you even saying this to me? But what God was doing um, was he was, well, here's the thing. So David hears this from God, all right? You're gonna, your family is going to reign forever, da, 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 da. And then even then he could be thinking purely, only in an earthly sense, right? And maybe people that came after him think the same thing, right? But some of you all have read the Old, the Old Testament, like, does that work out exactly as planned? If you thought that, only that. Like, yeah, this is going to be the only, like, we're going to have this kingdom. It's going to be great. We're going to be, like, super awesome in an earthly sense all the time. And then immediately after David, there starts to be a break, and then the kingdoms start to separate, and then there's fighting, and then there's attacks from outside. And eventually there's compromise, and there's, you know, and all the way until in um, 587 B.C., the temple is actually destroyed. The one that Solomon builds is destroyed, and people are taken away in exile to Babylon. Judah doesn't even exist anymore. If you're in that moment, you might be like, well, wait a second. What about this promise that God made to David? Like, wasn't, he spo- wasn't it supposed to last forever? Now, a lot of times when we hear, like, we have, so the story I'm telling you right now, we're thinking small. God says something back to us big. Sometimes we hear that, we get about halfway. And then we get halfway through it, and it doesn't seem to be working out like we thought. And so we go, gosh, maybe God was wrong. Right? These kind of things come into our head. Maybe none of this was, maybe this was all made up. Maybe I made up all these things. Maybe God never promised that. Maybe that, you know, this kind of thoughts come into our head. But meanwhile, and we'll talk about this at the, at the very last message of our David series in a little more depth. I'm going to read you this little chunk of scriptures here. Because the prophets, they didn't forget these promises to David. And God didn't forget these promises to David either. So at the times when it seems the least like it's going to happen, like things that God says over your life that seems the least like they're going to happen, prophets kept believing like this in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. Y'all know this one. A son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Listen to this one. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from the time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Or this one from Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise... To David, a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. Or this one from Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Starting to get bigger, this picture they're saying. And the truth is, which you know what I'm getting to, is that no, God wasn't wrong. And the prophets weren't wrong for putting their hope in this. And David wasn't either because what God was ultimately pointing to was the fulfillment of all of these things through Jesus when Jesus would come as the son of David. And so we can trust that God is going to deliver on his promises even through the hard times and confusing times. And it's okay that things don't make sense, right? Because as you remember going through the Gospel of John, Jesus the ultimate son of David came, fulfilling all these prophecies throughout the entire Old Testament that all these people had been putting their hope in, and most everyone was confused at some point in that interaction. 
Very few people were like, I get it the whole time. There were a handful of those, but there's very few. Most people are like, so is, like, what? You know, and it's okay to have that experience because don't assume that we will just get it all. When God moves in your life, oftentimes it's confounding. The issue isn't that you always understand everything. The issue is that you trust him through it. Okay? Do you all understand the difference between that? Because, like, I cannot understand how the electricity gets to these lights, but I trust that when I turn the switch on, it's going to work. Or the Internet doesn't work because it's a jerk. But <laughs> anyway. But it's not, it was confusing even at the time. Like, listen, this is Jesus talking, Matthew here, Matthew 22. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? This is Jesus talking. Like this Messiah you guys are waiting on, you know. The son of David, they replied. The right answer, again, referring to these scriptures. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said, come to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And this is everyone's response. These are like the smart guys, right? They go, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus is fulfilling these promises, but in ways that we're playing catch-up to understand. And the other thing is to never underestimate God in his promises. Because, again, if we start small, he answers, he answers big, and we may only go from small to, like, less small, or, like, in McDonald's sizes, large to extra large, you know. Didn't they eliminate small a long time ago? Supersize. He's giving supersized promises, and we're only hearing large. Because... This is where it got really big, was that even if they started to understand this full understanding of the Messiah coming and ruling and reigning in Israel, it was very hard, and especially if you remember when we went through the book of Acts, for them to understand that this promise that was being fulfilled, that this Messiah that was finally coming to rule and reign forever and ever and ever on on the, the throne of David, that that king is also the king of the universe, and that what he was doing as a ruler was opening up the hope of salvation to not just the Jewish people whom it was coming forth through, through the root, but was actually reaching out to anyone who will accept Jesus as Lord. That's like, they were like, whoa, you mean anyone now? Anyone can be saved through the blood of Jesus. And he was like, you could go all the way back to what he's talking about. David, he's like, that's what I was talking about the whole time. You know, I'm glad you're getting it now, you see. It's a big picture. You see this in Romans. Paul starting to make his case, which is a big case. Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Not hiding anything. He's putting it the whole time. Regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you are also among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. And Gentiles, in case you don't know, if you just never heard, it's just a word to mean anybody that's not from Israel, everybody else, which is most everybody. 
So Jesus is being offered. What Jesus did opens up this hope of salvation to anyone, which includes you. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you can accept him today, and that will change everything. Because eternal life, it does talk a lot about like when you die and you will be resurrected again to live eternally with him. But eternity doesn't start, like if you graft it on a point, it's not like, well, from now and there is eternity. It also goes that way. You see, when we were baptizing people earlier, we're not saying, do this now so that you'll have eternal life later. We're saying, you can have it now. You're welcome now to have it. (laughs) And I mean all of this especially when you don't understand it, okay, guys? That we can trust God because his promises are so much bigger than um, what we're usually thinking or understanding. And that's good. And so I need four youth to come up here and help me and to put down your phones. Y'all are on your phones on the front row. Oh, okay. My daughter has a notepad. <laughs> are you drawing? Oh, okay. Okay, sorry. I, I, I have to repent in front of everyone. <laughs> they were reading the Bible on their phones. So I apologize. As long as you're telling the truth. Okay. 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 <laughs> All right. I need four of y'all to come up here. Hey, I know. Some of them are, you know, some of them are my own teenagers. All right. Four. We got four. Okay. And again, like I said, so, uh, Kayla, you, you are, yeah, come on up. The, um, we're going to close in communion here. And guys, this is a good example of something that Jesus is doing that takes people a minute to catch on to. Jesus does this as part of the night before he dies as a symbol and a sign of what he's doing. And Judas is still there, and there's that whole thing that happens with that. And then Peter's like, I'll do anything for you. Remember we did the whole, I will die for you. And then Jesus is like, yeah, well, you're going to deny me. Like, and so people, they're trying to figure out, like in Luke, which we're going to read out of here, Immediately after this, they're like, let's get into a fight with each other over who's the greatest. And I could see Jesus being like, okay, like, you know, this is great, you know. And so it's okay to struggle with this stuff to understand it. The point is, we want to do this in remembrance of what God did, what Jesus did. Because when you start to think about promises that God made to the house of David, which now somehow miraculously even include us, Gentile people who don't deserve any of this. I'm not David's son, as far as I know, you know. And uh, I've only become included in that Father Abraham has many sons or into this house of David because of what Jesus did for me. And the same thing is true for you. But God's promises are so much bigger than they seem on the surface. We don't need to worry so much like we're going to run out. What Kevin said at the beginning should be the spiritual understanding that you go into this next season with. That when God is going to feed the thousands of people and he tells his disciples, will you feed them? And they're like, what are you talking about? We can't feed these people. Like, we have nothing. And then one of the stories is like, well, this kid has some food. Like, they just went. They have something. And Jesus, well, that's that's fine. Let's feed everybody with that. They're like, what are you talking about? There's thousands of people here. And he's like, well, let's pray it and let's divide it. Now, that would be a miracle if somehow with just a few pieces of bread or a few fish, you could feed thousands of people. That's a big deal, right? We would go, that's worth being in the book. And we would write it down. The weirdest detail is why are there leftovers? There's baskets, and they say how many? How many big baskets of leftover stuff? Which 
leads to a couple things you can think about. Well, one is that after you feed everybody with this miraculously divided fish and loaves, everybody's full. That's kind of amazing. Like, did that happen? I don't know if that happened. Do you all remember that happened? I mean, I ate something. Did you eat something? Did everybody else lie? I mean, I know what I did. I don't know what you guys did. We all seem to be full. But when you got 12 baskets or 14, however many baskets it was sitting up front, you're like, we started with this, and we ended with not only enough food to go around, but we had baskets left over that we can look at. And it means there's more people to feed. And there's two stories in this. There's one time Jesus does it, and it's on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And there's another time he does it, it's on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a symbol that what Jesus is doing is taking this thing that God has started this whole time through Abraham, through Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the whole story, through David, all the way down, and he's doing, fulfilling everything he's promising for, and he's giving it to everybody else. And when he's done giving it, there's leftovers. Our idol that I talked about of stuff and consumerism, we get so, like, we're going to run out, 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 I'm not going to have enough, we're going to run out. And God is saying, when I do things, there's leftovers, like a lot. There's plenty to share, and there's always room for more. So I'm going to read this because Jesus, and then I'm going to have you guys serve the communion to people, okay? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to bless these elements. I'm going to hand them to them, and the youth are going to serve you guys communion. We're going to have two of you guys stand over here and two of you guys stand over there once I give it to you. And we also have, if if you have uh, a need, we have these little ones that are kind of hermetically sealed and less... Um, Jeremy, maybe. But we're going to bless. I didn't mean it to be weird. I didn't know how to say it. Everybody, whatever. Forget it. <laughs> this has not been my best day. Did I forget to baptize anybody else? <sighs> Luke 22. This is Jesus now. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. Just like this. Thank you for this, Lord. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is God coming as a man, as a son of David, dying for us. And he's offering this to you. In the same way, after that, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So, God, we take this seriously. We want to do this in remembrance of you. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless this time of communion as we come as your family in this place to eat at your table together. That you would bless this time as we eat of your flesh and blood that you've given to us for freedom of sin and restoration of our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So come forward as we sing this song, and we'll just close in a song.